One of the highlights of visiting Israel is visiting Jerusalem. And one of the highlights of visiting Jerusalem is visiting the old city. It never gets old, so to speak. And there you can walk through the thin alleys of the Arab Shuk, squeeze past Christian pilgrims going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or run ahead of Muslim worshipers rushing to afternoon prayers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. You can grab a fresh squeeze orange juice from a vendor or argue over the price of t-shirts with a hawker. You can wait in line for a falafel, explore the archeological remains below the city streets, and along with thousands and thousands of other Jews, touch the stones of what remains of the ancient temple. There you can place your hands on the Kotel, the Western Wall. To get to these sites, one typically enters the city through Zion Gate. Other times we walk through the Jaffa Gate, the busy Jaffa Gate, or even through the Dung Gate, depending on actually where the bus can find parking. There are actually eight such gates to the old city. Dung sits adjacent to the Arab town of Silwan and is where the trash was taken out from the city in ancient times, hence its name. The path to Jaffa Gate that before 1967 was no man's land is now lined with a shopping mall. And Zion is still pockmarked with bullet holes from the fierce fighting that occurred there during the 1948 war. I'm particularly fond of this gate. It retains its ancient bend so that you cannot walk straight through. And I often have to jockey for position with a car that wants to make its way out. Long ago, this bend served as an added defense against invaders. And just as the cars cannot speed through the gate, so too foot soldiers had difficulties running straight through. This bend is also reminiscent of the judicial benches built into the gates during ancient times. It is where people took their cases and judges sat rendering judgments. It is a common biblical motif and one that is taken up by many of our prophets. Amos shouts, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. He meant this literally. Judgment sits at the edges. Justice stands at the periphery. And I have been thinking about gates and the space they occupy in our lives. They are the boundary between us and them, between our perceptions of safety and danger. They are the liminal passageway through which we render daily judgments about what is okay and what is not. We organize our lives around such gates. In the St. Louis of my youth, I grew up in a subdivision called Lac Dubois a fancy-sounding French name for Lake of the Woods. Recall that it is not, as we say, St. Louis, but St. Louis, or that the small town in which Lac Dubois is located is pronounced, not pronounced as we do, Creve Cour, but the French Creve Cour. Later, I can tell you the story about the Native American princess and her broken heart for which the town is named. But these days... I'm thinking about how intimidating those subdivision gates might appear to others and how all these names and all this language make some insiders and others 
outsiders. There is judgment in a name, and there is exclusion in language. And even though the subdivision's gates were always opened, they remained locked to some. This evening, I wish to meditate on the inadvertent gates we too often construct. This Yom Kippur, this is the confession I offer. In Jerusalem's old city, the gates are obvious. In our lives, they are hidden to those who sit inside. We need to shine a light on these gates and acknowledge them. So let us dwell on these gates, and most especially on those who provide us with unknowing reassurance, but to others, exclusion. This all became glaringly apparent to me as I prepared for a wedding this past June. Every wedding is, of course, different. And every couple is unique and every ceremony joyous, but David and Max's wedding was unlike any I had officiated at in my 30 plus years of rabbiing. David and Max are gay and they are two grooms. It is not that I refused to officiate at gay or lesbian weddings years ago, but no one had asked and no congregant had invited me to do so. And I was grateful for the invitation. We studied the ceremony together. I poured over the tradition's words and language that I have nearly memorized. Mi adir al hakol, mi baruch al hakol, mi gadol al hakol, hu yivrech hatan bekala, who blesses the bride and groom. I may have unlatched the gate, but David and Max threw it open. The ceremony's gates are everywhere. Hatan bekala, bride and groom, they appear are near every single page. Should I say re'im ha'ahuvim, loving companions, in its place are chatan v'chatan, groom and groom. We spoke openly about their meanings. We decided to interchange both terms. But what about the vows? The list appeared lengthy. They forgave my gaffe when I, in one of our preparatory meetings, asked, how many people are in the bridal party? The language... The language of yesterday is carved in our brains. It does not, however, have to be etched in our hearts. I rejoice in their love, and it was a splendid and joyous occasion. So mazel tov, David and Max, and thank you for the teachings. I'm still left wondering how many locked gates are arrayed before us, how many does our inheritance arrange while we sit unknowing and unaware within its walls? Our language and how we idealize relationships can be doorways to openness or locked gates turning others away. In our traditions, efforts to make us feel like insiders, it may make more people than we realize feel like outsiders. I'm holding on to the symbolism of the chuppah. It is open on all sides. We usually explain it this way. The chuppah is open to symbolize that a couple's home should be welcoming to others. It should include not just friends, but family. It should most especially be open to the new family each partner is joining. The couple is now one family and no longer two. But perhaps, perhaps we should see the chuppah's openness in a different manner. It is open to all to all who wish to sanctify their commitment and love. It has no gates, 
It offers no judgments. Reverend, Reverend Victoria Safford, an author and minister, writes, our mission is to plant ourselves at the gates of hope, not the prudent gates of optimism, which are somewhat narrower, nor the stalwart, boring gates of common sense, nor the strident gates of self-righteousness, nor the cheerful, flimsy garden gate of everything is going to be all right, but a different, sometimes lonely place, the piece of ground from which you see the world both as it is and as it could be, as it will be. Open the gates of hope. Every loving relationship offers promise. Place your faith in hope. Too often we say things like, that's not really marriage, or that's not what God wants. But how can we be so sure? We shut out others to our own demise. We close those gates. We banish hope from our own souls. Back to the neighborhoods. Recently, I installed a ring doorbell. It's awesome. I can see when packages are delivered. I can get notified when someone is at my door, even when I'm not home. I did not know about another one of its features called neighbor, but it confirmed my love-hate relationship with technology. And before I figured out how to turn these neighbor notifications off, I was receiving frequent alerts that said something like this, man carrying plastic bag, and when I didn't answer, he tried to enter my backyard. He lurked around my house for 45 minutes. Or the following, man carrying green bag and smoking and walking into yards and snooping around property. Everyone is suspect. Keep the doors locked. Scan the property for anyone who does not look like us. Don't get me wrong. I am not trying to critique the need for us to have security or ignore the frightening increase in anti-Semitism or the daily occurrences of violent gun attacks in our country or to suggest that if you're home alone, you should fling the door open to every stranger. But not everyone on the other side of the camera or the other side of the gate is dangerous. We are so worried we are so worried about letting the wrong people in that we may be keeping the right people out. Just because they're on the outside does not mean they do not belong on the inside. Just because they're on the other side of our gates does not mean that they are a threat and that we should not welcome them in. The Torah is clear. Love the stranger. Bahaftam et hager. And who is the stranger it is the person who we feel is distant but stands nearby. It is the person who sits just outside the gates. That is why judges sat at the edges of the city to echo the prophets. It was to affirm how, that this, how we respond to those on the periphery is a measure of our righteousness. We have erected filters whether they are the tradition's eyes or technology's cameras through which we look out into the world. Take down those gates. We should caricature less. We should judge far less frequently. If we take the time to sit across the table from others who are not yet our friends, we might fill our hearts with hopefulness. 
and I am certain our souls will respond with gratitude. They will shout words of thanks. A story. A few years ago when traveling with Ari in Laos, I know not your typical rabbinic field trip, Ari convinced me not only to meet him in Laos, but also that we should sign up for a hike through the jungle. The destination for this hike was a Hamong village. I was quite trepidatious, and I offered up many roadblocks before saying yes to the hike. I had a multitude of worries, chief among them the availability of gluten-free food in the jungle. Ari opened the gate, and we walked through. Soon after the start of the hike, another traveler heard Ari's unmistakable Long Island accent and asked, where on Long Island are you from? <laughs> and we answered, Huntington. Turns out Rob grew up in Huntington and had just moved to, of all places, Missouri. And a friendship with Rob and his partner, Melissa, was born. Nowhere in our planning did we imagine the following. Go to Laos, hike the jungle, discover a fellow Long Islander, and become longtime friends. I almost did not go. The gate is opened, serendipity walks through, and the soul is renewed. When we open those gates, venture beyond their edges, and push past our fears, we encounter the unexpected. We welcome renewal. Too often fear stands in our way. It need not rule our souls. We forget gates are meant to be opened. On this Yom Kippur, let us open the gates. On this day when we seek to better ourselves and when we recount most especially our frequent misuse of words, let us acknowledge those hurtful comments and inopportune phrases we so often utter. Let us work to throw these gates of you don't belong here or that's not what marriage really is open. These gates exclude some we are meant to include. These bolted doors offer judgment where understanding and compassion will better serve not only others, but us as well. We are very good at using these gates to keep others out. We are very good at using language to exclude people. We say things like, that's forbidden, this is not your place, or get off my property, they make me uncomfortable. Too often we think gates are only meant to be closed. We think they're all about protecting us. They're meant to be opened. They are intended for, as invitations for welcome. Open the gates to the unexpected. Serendipity restores the soul, and hope is burnished by compassion. A community is a hodgepodge of differences. Let's sit like the judges of yesteryear at the periphery. But rather than offer the judgments, let's wave people in. Let us embrace others, even if they don't always look like us, or talk like us, or think like us, or act like us. Soon we will be celebrating the holiday of Sukkot. We are supposed to welcome everyone into these temporary booths. 
The sukkah has no doors. Its walls and its flimsy roof, roof through which we must be able to see the stars in the sky must all have a temporary quality. This temporariness enhances the sukkah's openness. It is to feel, it, is, it feels akin to a tent. The sukkah cannot be so strong so as to be able to withstand a storm. When it rains, we are commanded to leave the sukkah and go inside to our house. The sukkah is too open to stand up against bad weather. Without doors and sturdy walls, without a roof that keeps the rain out, things do feel flimsy. Openness feels threatening. And so what do we do? We bolt our doors, we erect formidable defenses, some in plain sight, another others not even seen by ourselves we turn our focus on these locks and these gates we soon forget how to even open them we forget how to unlock them we lose sight of how to invite others in we look within and only without through lenses and peepholes and our vision narrows we lose sight of those who sit on the edges how do we unlock the gates how can we embrace the openness of the sukkah and not lose faith because of its apparent flimsiness? Back to Jerusalem. Rabbi Elazar said, since the day the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer are locked and prayer is not accepted as it once was. Yet even though the gates of prayer are locked, the gates of tears are never locked. One who cries before God may rest assured that these prayers will always be answered. Tears open the gates if only we can hear them, if only we can see the pain that sits right nearby. Hear the cry of our forefather Isaac. I imagine that when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, on the very spot where the temple once stood and below which we can now touch the stones of the western wall, Isaac shed tears as he looked up at his father who was clutching the knife, lifted up above his neck, neck ready to sacrifice him. Abraham was so zealous so zealous in his pursuit of what he believed to be God's command, the angel had to shout his name twice to stay his hand. Avraham, Avraham, Abraham, Abraham. Finally, Abraham looks up from his son and saw the ram which he then sacrificed in place of Isaac. Perhaps this was God's intention all along. Isaac represents the hope and promise of the future. How could God want Abraham to sacrifice his son? If you don't look, if you don't open the gates of hope, you cannot really see. After slaughtering the ram, Abraham names the place Adonai Yerah, God sees. Too often we are like that zealous Abraham, slamming those gates shut, unwilling to see the person standing nearby, and unable to see the tears before us and we close the doors of hope. If we don't see the person standing on the periphery, then we too are likewise blinded by what we believe. If we don't see the gates that bar others from feeling welcome, then we are just as zealous. 
How do we help to make these gates more visible so that we can unlock them? How can we no longer be blinded by zealousness? There is only one answer, and that is to sit with others and listen. It is to learn how others feel. It is to imagine how our words might sound in their ears. It is to open with compassion and invitation rather than exclusion and judgment. According to the tradition, when the Messiah comes to rescue the world, the Mashiach will first come to Jerusalem and begin the messianic redemption in the old city. And through which of Jerusalem's gates will the Messiah enter? Sha'ar harachamim, the gate of compassion. And here's the funny thing about that gate. Today, that gate is literally blocked up. It is filled with stones from floor to ceiling, all cemented together. The gate of compassion is sealed shut. And that seems the perfect metaphor for our age. We spend so much time erecting gates in our effort to keep others out or to say people don't belong rather than the few moments it takes to unlatch them. Gates are meant to be opened. The one gate that can unlock hope is blocked. The gate of compassion beckons if we but unlatch it. We are called not to judge. We are asked to welcome and invite. Only then will the Messiah enter. Only then will redemption occur. Only then will hope return to our hearts.